Good morning again. And if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, to continue our sermon series through this uh, somewhat unusual book in the Old Testament. And today we are in chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes. The words will also be shown, I think, hopefully. But if you can keep your Bibles in front of you, that will serve you through our message this morning as well. So follow along as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The preacher says this, he says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for peace and a time, sorry, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Would you pray with me? Father, as we seek to see you in your word and hear from you, would you please inform us this morning and transform us by your word and by your grace. Incline our hearts to your truth and to your testimonies and not to selfishness and selfish gain that lead us in your ways everlasting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Amen. Well, keep the Bible, uh, that chapter open to you if you can. Uh, We'll be referring back to that passage. And let me start by saying uh, this passage uh, has a very personal meaning uh, for me in particular, and it is instrumental in why I'm actually standing before you today. And so I thought you might be interested to understand what that's about briefly as we start. Back in 2008, our church back in Maryland was doing something just as we're doing here, going through a message series in Ecclesiastes. And God's preached word was having its effect in me. And through the week, I was journaling and reflecting on what was being uh, preached and what I was reading God's word. And I was reflecting uh, particularly on the uncertainties of life that the preacher, that we've, we've seen the last couple of weeks, the preacher is covering in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I asked myself this question. I wrote down in my journal, where does eternity lie? And you may have already seen a familiar verse, perhaps for some, and the answer comes in this passage. In chapter 3, verse 11, God says, eternity is in the hearts of man. And as I was writing that answer in my journal, I had a very subjective sense of God speaking to me, not only the answer to my question, but also a very subjective sense of a call to ministry, a desire to encourage and build up those who have already given their faith to Christ and whose hearts and lives are now in him forever and will set their, have their lives with him forever, wanting to encourage and exhort as we journey on. And for those who do not yet know him, to want to plead with them to turn to him while they can repent and find a new life in Christ. I took that sense to my elders, and uh, we, that led to a, a path uh, which took me through the pastor's college and brought me to King of Grace Church and brings me here this morning. And so I am very blessed and privileged in God's providence to be preaching to you on the passage which I find puts me behind this pulpit. So the application from today's passage is that I expect all of you to be telling me how you want to serve us in ministry and sign up. Of course, that's not the case. That was a very subjective thing for me, but some of you may find a sense of calling uh, and God speaking to you through this. We want to encourage that. Trust that God does raise up many still for the work of his kingdom in that sense. But for all of us this morning, I do trust that we will leave with a clearer understanding of how this passage applies for all of us in our daily lives and by God's grace, live our lives further transformed by his truth. And in particular, I want us to see, and I hope we'll see from this passage, that our longing for a true and lasting value can be satisfied only in the everlasting God. I'll say that again. The point that we're going to see this morning is that our longing for true and lasting value can be satisfied only in the everlasting God. We're going to get to that point through a series of points from the passage. The first of all, we're going to see is that God has created us longing for true and lasting value. And in this case, the scriptures, in a sense, give the creator's explanation to what we already have a very subjective sense in and of ourselves. That desire which is in all of us to contribute to something of meaning and value, to contribute to something that will have some sort of lasting effect. We all have that to different degrees, I think. Some of us are simply looking for an effect and a a lasting value out of today. 
Some of us are thinking into, to, in terms of legacies of a lifetime and into generations to come. But some way, we're all looking for meaning in our daily lives and in our lifetime for our, the effect of our lives to have true and lasting value. We saw last week from chapter 2, particularly the, the preacher of this book, talking about that impact with regards to our work and our careers. But it can apply in our relationships. We want our relationships to matter in raising our families, in being part of any sort of organization, in improving our skills, perhaps in sports or in some other hobby. We do all of these things with an expectation that there will be some value, some lasting effect. And again, the, the verse I've already referenced, verse 11 from our passage today, we see there God's explanation for why that is. Verse 11, we see, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Preacher of Ecclesiastes recognizes that there is something God has inherently hardwired into each and every one of us, that desire for lasting value and effect from our lives. But there's something more in this passage, more than just wanting to make a contribution that lasts for a long time. My wife Kelly uh, sometimes teases me for the things that I've held on to throughout my life. I generally keep things in good condition and working order. Um, and one thing in particular is I, when I find a good writing implement, a pen, or a, I've got some mechanical pencils that I've held on to since high school, and I still use them, and I still look after them, and I get a little teasing every now and again for holding on to these things, but I recognize that they have no lasting value. I make them last, but I don't hold value to them. So as well as having this longing for lasting value, we also have a longing for something to be valued appropriately and having worth behind it. We want our contribution not to be meaningless, we want our, and, but lasting. We want our contribution to have right value, to be assessed fairly, to be judged rightly. We, want think, we know and want that things that are done well, when we do good and when we do right, we want those to be successful and rewarded. And we want things done wrong not to succeed. And if appropriate, we want to see them appropriately punished. Again, the preacher sees this and communicates this in verse 17 of our passage. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. You'll recall from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the opening chapters of the Bible, that God created man to experience and enjoy lasting and true value from all of life, from the work that he gave Adam and Eve to their relationships one and another, and from their relationships with God himself. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, a familiar verse most likely, says, God blessed them after he had made Adam and Eve. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God intended our lives to have lasting fruitfulness. And we know that to be true. It's the longing within us that our work, our effort is both lasting 
and rightly valued. But then, of course, immediately after Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 comes chapter 3 and the fall of mankind. And Adam's sin affects all of mankind and it affects the world around us. So before we can move on to the joyful good news of how our longing for true and lasting value ultimately finds its satisfaction in God, the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to see how that longing for true and lasting value can only be disappointed in the world. So that's our second point, that our longing for true and lasting value is only ever disappointed in this fallen world. The preacher is wrestling with that longing. He's looking around him, he's looking at the world around him, and he's seeing the disconnect between this longing that he knows God has placed within him and he's, the, the, what the world can offer. As far as he has seen and as far as he has experienced, and we've seen previously he's experienced and seen pretty much everything, the world doesn't hold satisfaction for that lasting value. And he sets that out for his readers and for us today, that as far as he can see, the world only holds disappointment. We see that, first of all, in the disappointment of times coming to an end, that the longing for lasting value cannot be found in the world. The opening verse of our chapter today, verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he goes on to what now is perhaps a well-known poem, capturing the fullness of human experience from beginning to end. And the problem that the preacher is presenting is not only that the seasons of life come and go, but that nothing seems to change by what we do. You and I have seemed to have no significant impact to the course of mankind's history, our own personal stories or history in general, the seasons and the times seem to change and continue unaffected by what you and I do. The same is true for the preacher when he wrote the passage. The same is true for all mankind, generation after generation. Seasons come and seasons go. And whether you've lived through a good number of these seasons already, or whether in your, you're in your first few seasons, this doesn't really come as a surprise to any of us, does it? I think we all know, at least at an intellectual level, our minds know that stages of life have a beginning and stages of life have an end. We all experience a multitude of these beginnings and endings through life. Some of them are big and dramatic. Some of them are small. Some of them are expected right from the very start. Some of them come unexpectedly and quite tragically. Friendships are formed and friendships fade or are broken. First day of school turns into graduation. Children need you. Grow up and then you need them. Eventually, uh, you need them, certainly. Jobs and businesses start Careers end and businesses close. Health is enjoyed and then illness or injury shows what we've been taking for granted for so long. Friendship in, over a shared meal is a delight 
And then COVID comes along and we all stay home. Because of Adam's sin, even life is guaranteed for all of us to end in the exact same way, in death. And the trouble is, because God has so hardwired us for eternity, and yet our moral compass is so misaligned from what God intended it to be, that these truths don't shape us in the way the creator and the preacher wants us to be shaped. Really, there are only two logical choices that echo the preacher's despairing question in verse 9. That's the first one. We can echo his question in verse 9. It says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Because he sees that nothing changes. Or we can humbly acknowledge the everlasting God, and we'll come on to that point after this. But instead, rather than either of those two approaches, rather than embracing despair or embracing God, we trick ourselves into thinking that there is some third option, which is effectively the path of burying our heads in the sand, essentially denying our mortality and fooling ourselves that who we are and what we do will go on forever regardless. I read an article this week um, along these lines by pastor and writer Tim Keller. Tim Keller has written uh, many wonderful books that have served God's people, uh, his church helping us to know his word and his son, Jesus Christ, and walk in his ways. One of his more recent books was a book called On Death to help people facing death walk through that from a Christian perspective. And yet in this article that I read, he openly admits that even he found he had been living with this practical denial of his own mortality, which he realized when he was diagnosed last year with pancreatic cancer. In the article, he quotes 16th century theologian John Calvin. He says, this is Calvin speaking, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life. The moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity or immortality remains fixed in our minds. Keller goes on to write, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. Well, brothers and sisters, wisdom calls to us this morning to examine ourselves in light of Keller's experience and in light of the preacher's words in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But there is more to recognize from this passage that this fallen world only holds disappointment for our longing for true and lasting value. Not only does this world disappoint to provide, not to provide last, uh, things that are truly everlasting, it also disappoints in providing true evaluation and justice. Again, the preacher highlights the tainted justice system of this world. In verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Again, we saw last week, immediately after sin 
entering God's creation in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 4, we read the story of Cain and Abel. And righteous Abel did not receive justice for his work. Instead, he was murdered by his brother. We see a world tainted in justice. People not finding and receiving the true evaluation of their work and contribution. Now, most likely, you and I don't experience anything of the same degree of wickedness and injustice as Abel to threaten our lives. But I think we've all experienced that to one degree or another, or we will, for sure. Those who work hard and faithfully find themselves always looking for the next job. Or those who are overlooked for their efforts and see a promotion go to the one whose only effort goes into sweet-talking the boss. When reward is given to those who deserve it, and yet see that the same reward is given to those who don't, leaving those who worked hard wondering, how is that just? Maybe your experience is quite literally within the legal system. Justice may be kept from you for any number of reasons. The point is, this world will only disappoint in providing true value of life and our labors. So what does the preacher conclude? In verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. The preacher looks at the world, and he says, what other conclusion can you draw? Man and the animals, they all come to the same end. All is vanity. Thankfully, though, that is not the preacher's final conclusion. It is not the final conclusion of God's revealed word to us. Although all is vanity is the most appropriate conclusion when viewing the world by itself, the preacher does have moments of partial clarity and insight regarding this longing for true and lasting value. When light from heaven breaks through into his bleak view and assessment of mankind. A clarity which he shares with us, and it is a clarity which even more is, is even more clearer and more vivid for us living in the New Testament era, which we'll come on to see. But he is encapsulating something which a more modern writer, C.S. Lewis, put very well and very succinctly in his book, Mere Christianity. And we have this quote, if we can put that up. C.S. Lewis wrote this, he said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, 
That does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else, the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That true country which Lewis speaks of and which the preacher points us to is to know that our longing for true and lasting value can only be satisfied in the everlasting God. So we come to our main point. Our longing for true and lasting value can only be satisfied in the everlasting God. God gives the preacher insight beyond what he could see, simply an experience in the world alone. The preacher recognizes that his longing for lasting can only be found in the everlasting God. Verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. See, the preacher knows that the barrier mankind faces to knowing the everlasting God isn't just the one we've seen in verse 20, that man's end is to, clear, is to return to dust. The preacher knows that that is a direct consequence of God's curse on Adam for mankind's sin. Genesis 3:19, in God's proclamation of his curse upon Adam and Eve, to Adam he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mankind's returning to dust is not merely a consequence of biology, but a consequence of our rebellion against our Creator. Yet, although this preacher couldn't see the specific cause for hope, he knew enough of God's promises of a Redeemer to keep looking to God in the midst of a disappointing world. And of course, for us, we can see that promise completely fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We're going to see in a couple of different places how in the New Testament we read in the Apostle Paul's teaching how he completes the preacher's thoughts from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. First of all, let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the Apostle Paul's great passage on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications for the Christian believer. And in that chapter, we read these words. Again, I think we have this to show. Starting in verse 21, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those are so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. God has provided through his Son, our risen Savior, satisfaction for our longing for lasting value, for immortality through a new and eternal life through his Son, Jesus Christ. But the preacher goes on. He knows that there is hope also for satisfying our need and desire for a true evaluation of our lives to be judged truly and fairly. We've looked at it before, but look again at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. We typically think of God's judgment as a fearsome thing, don't we? And it is fearsome for all of us because we have to give account for our sin and for our disobedience before our Creator. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher holds out the other side of the same coin. That if God is to be our perfect judge, then he also can hold comfort and hope for those who have experienced injustice and failure to receive the right reward for their good work. And the preacher sees that all, and God will judge all rightly and fairly. But what about the other side of that coin? What about our sin? How will God deal with that? What confidence do we have that God will deal mercifully with us as we all most desperately need? Again, we have the advantage of the New Testament to make that crystal clear for us and reveal the full and glorious good news and hope that we have through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul continues and presents this argument in talking to the the philosophers of Athens. We read in Acts chapter 17 how he presents his account uh, of the gospel to them. And it's interesting to see how remarkably similar or how he touches on the same points as the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3. Read along with me. And again, I have these words to see. Acts chapter 17. He says to them, the God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Sounds a lot like seasons and times. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, the preacher did not, was not privy to see what would happen 
in the life of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul holds that out before us and says that the resurrection of Christ from the dead breaks the pattern that we see in Ecclesiastes of times and seasons. The preacher had no explanation for birth, death, and then birth again. But Jesus Christ demonstrates that he has beaten death and returned to a new and everlasting life. Not resuscitation, not reincarnation, but resurrection. Fully dying, fully returning as himself. The preacher could only trust in a very unclear picture of God's righteous judgment. But for us today, for those who respond as Acts chapter 17 calls, who repent, who turn away from rejecting God and rejecting God's ways, who seek to follow him, who trust that Christ took upon himself their sin, their rebellion, and he in himself bore God's punishment, right and just punishment for their sin. Well, now, God, for those people, God now offers full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And he offers assurance that in the final judgment, God will rightly reward our good work that he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we see that our longing for true and lasting value can be satisfied only in the everlasting God and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me sum this up with some couple of points of application. First and foremost, let me appeal to you that if you have not examined the preacher's assessment of the world, if you are in that middle place of thinking that you can go on regardless, thinking that you are essentially immortal and that your work will last forever, then please listen and pay attention to the preacher's caution. And the words we've looked at this morning. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And his resurrection from the dead shows that what he did and is accomplished. But he now calls us to repent. And this world only holds disappointment for that longing for true and lasting value. That God has placed in all of us. But when we turn to Jesus and find new life in him we have a confidence that that longing will be satisfied now and for all eternity. But what about for us who, as Christians, have placed our faith and know this new life? Is the message of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes that we should basically ignore the times, that our behavior doesn't matter? As long as we're okay for eternity, then just grin and bear it? No, not at all. Hopefully you see that in there, but let's look at one application the the preacher gives us in verse 12. He says, I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Tim Keller, in the article I referenced earlier, he went on to say this. He says, when we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, 
they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. But to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, that's his wife, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex and conversation, bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revelation. As, God simply, as God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded, then I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. God gives us our moments, our times, and our seasons, and our work as a gift. And to be grateful, and to be thankful to him, and to enjoy them for the fullness that can be enjoyed from them. We should thank God and appreciate them by ourselves and with one another. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time doing that or, or gearing my mind around doing that, so I look for help wherever I can. One thing I wanted to show you uh, is this small little book called Every Moment Holy. It's a relatively new book, um, and it's a simple little book, basically full of what it calls liturgies. Now, don't be put off by the word liturgy if that's uh, concerning to you. All it means is just habits of praying and lifting moments of our everyday lives before God. And um, I know I've I found this, we, our family have found this very helpful. We've actually been looking at this as a pastoral team and finding it very helpful just to think through the idea of liturgy in general in terms of disciplines and habits we establish in our lives to orientate ourselves around the mundane things of life so that we still acknowledge and give thanks to God. So, for example, in this book, you'll find liturgies for those who are employed and for students. A liturgy of thanksgiving and praise for changing diapers, if you would believe such a thing. Liturgies for starting a book and for ending a book. Liturgies for welcoming a new pet and for the loss of a pet. For starting a new home and for the anniversary of a loss. All sorts of things that help speak into how we can orient our lives and the idea is not that you necessarily learn or memorize these things or you say, oh, hold on, I'm doing the dishes. Let me go grab the book and remember what I need to say. But as we look through it, and other things besides, the, the scriptures, the, the Psalms are very helpful in this, just to help us orient our lives to giving thanks to God for the things he gives us. Every day, every moment can be done in taking pleasure in what God has given us. The second application for us is that we can take advantage of the times and seasons still to pursue everlasting treasure and reward. You'd be familiar with the words that Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've got a, a summary of this again to show. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, When you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast... Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. God has made it so that we can enjoy every moment of our lives in and of themselves. But he has also made it in some way so that these moments can actually be crafted and serve to build up an eternal reward in his kingdom. Jesus promises that our lives can have some sort of true and everlasting value. So it only makes sense to prioritize and to pursue those things. Let me close with a very simple illustration, something that I found online. Dan, if you could put up that first picture, please. Our lives are full of so many different moments. Sometimes they seem unconnected, unrelated. Some of them are not very pretty, not very glamorous. These uh, pictures might represent things that uh, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you've probably had things like this hanging on your fridge at some point or another. These are children's self-portraits. And sometimes our lives are like this. They're a bit higgledy-piggledy, things knocked together, no real seeming combination or connection, one thing to the next. If you could zoom out, Dan, on to the next slide. Here's some more. This is just taking a further step back and looking a little bit at the bigger picture, but still looks a bit of a jumbled mess. I'm not sure there's any meaning there, really. Let's go back another one. Still, our lives can be full of different seasons and different times, and sometimes we struggle to know how to make sense of them. Let's go to the next one. But sometimes God shows us, and he has shown us here today and through the passage we've seen, that there is a purpose in our lives. Life is not meaningless, and he redeems and restores every moment for himself. On to the next one. And on to the next one. And on to the next one. That's uh, over 200,000 pictures of children's self-portraits combined into one grand picture. For the Christian, the final picture is one that is far more glorious than Queen Elizabeth II. Life is a vapor, but for those in Christ Jesus, it is not meaningless. God chose us before the foundation of the world for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, into an inheritance kept in heaven for the fullness of glory in Christ Jesus to be revealed. And our longing for true and lasting value is fully and finally satisfied in him. He has revealed this to be true through his resurrection and we can have full assurance that our lives have meaning in the new life we find in him. Let's pray together.